The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind the curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Today we are deeply honored and frankly, a bit overwhelmed to have violinist Pinkas Zuckerman joining us. In case you've been living under a rock for the last half century, Maestro Zuckerman is a multi-threat musician. He's, of course, a legendary violin virtuoso, but he's also an acclaimed conductor and a renowned educator. He joins us from his hotel room here in Salt Lake as he takes a break from rehearsing with the Utah Symphony for concerts this coming weekend. Welcome, Maestro. Nice to see you all. It's so great to have you. It is indeed wonderful to have you, Maestro. And Carol mentioned that you're in town conducting the Utah Symphony. As we record, you're in the midst of rehearsing a program of Bach, Elgar, Mozart, a piece by Jesse Montgomery. Could you talk a little bit about how this program was constructed? And in fact, what's it like putting programs together in the time of COVID? Well, it's a very good question. First of all, you had very learned, wonderful people that you talk to. There's music administrators, et cetera, in these organizations. They are really doing a fantastic job now in working out because the programs have been planned, as you must know, a year, sometimes two years in advance, the soloist, et cetera. Um, and they've been working with the candle burning on both sides. Um, at any rate, what Toby phoned and he said, could you come? I said, yeah, I think so. And so we started talking about the different size orchestra. This is actually a much larger string section that I have had uh, both in Providence and also in Stanford. Uh, nevertheless, they're on single stands with all the distance correct, etc. cetera. Uh, everybody is in the back there today. In fact, I said, you know, I always turn to the inside in this spot, the inside of the first violins that happened to be because that's the bottom voice. I don't know who's playing that now. So, <laughs> ah, me, me. Okay, so, because it, it's, it's so hard to figure out. But anyway, it took a few minutes. Um, they're used to it. They're good. They're wonderful. They're playing beautifully. The program itself was constructed out of maybe three or four different phone calls um, because they have everything worked out for cleanliness, for medically speaking, for distance. Uh, the winds, for example, if they play on the program once, that's it. They they can't play again. They cannot come in and out. Um, so we had to construct a different day. I wanted to do Schubert first and maybe another Mozart symphony that had more wins. They all talked about it. They decided to come with Mozart 29, which only has two, almost two horns. And I said, that's fine. That was one of the orchestra. And then they said, can you please play something? I said, if you want me to, sure. Let's do some Bach because it's the strings and it's a beautiful piece. I don't get to play it that often because usually if I'm playing, it's a romantic piece. Beethoven, it's Brahms, it's this and that. So this is a, a way to do that. Um, the Montgomery uh, piece, they knew already because I've done it in Providence. I was going to do it in Dallas back in, um, in July but it didn't work out because I didn't go. I just felt I couldn't go. Uh, Elgar was really something they also don't play very often. So it all kind of came together a couple of days talking and uh, here we are. We, we had a bit of a 
question which way should we play it should i play first should i play second should i finish the program blah 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 and so we decided with this order frankly if we feel that it's not quite right i turn around and say ladies and gentlemen we're changing the order for today <laughs> that's Why no not? Deal, you know um but it seemed to work as far as this part of the second question i mean the second answer here is that i spent seven almost eight years in saint paul chamber orchestra And we basically had six, six, four, four, two, plus a couple of wins. We had oboes, horns, bassoons, trumpets, uh, one flute, um, and timpani. So what we call chamber orchestra. What is a chamber orchestra? You tell me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the problem is that the size of the strings is what it consists of will constitute a chamber orchestra. Um, there is a letter, for example, from Mozart to his dad, when he wrote the 40th symphony, uh, he, had, he wrote to him, he said, last night I had the, my 40th symphony played by 40 violins. Whoa, I went 40 violins? Well, again, who knows how it sounded? The, the, string, <laughs> the short this, the bow, the deuce, the ba 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 da boom. If we play with 40, we play with 40 violins today, we blow people out of the state, you know? It would be so loud. So we've learned to play more in the dynamic range that we know how to play. What we don't do in the symphonic world, in the romantic orchestra, because we have so many bodies that play the strings, we have eight cellos oh my god that's like mana from heaven do we need it for everything no but it'd be nice to have it for the piano because if you can support the piano properly especially on the bottom now mind you you have one of the most beautiful concert halls in the world here your brother is really gorgeous so we we've come back even today now we had the first rehearsal we've learned to play the five dynamics Because in a big orchestra, they are blasting away like crazy. You have to put all these things now we have for health reasons in front of the brass, you know. So, and I always have to go, excuse me, even today, I said to the horns, I said, hey, you, you got to play a little less, please, you know, because we're not used to it. So it's a question of adjustment. By the time we finish these, this week, these guys are going to go, my God, we've never played a piano like that in our lives. I know that because they'll hear, hear me play, they'll see what I'm doing for you diction-wise, because I really play the strings like consonants and vowels. You know, I don't just play the violin. And so they'll realize, and I started with them already today on that language. Now, some of it, I'm sure, is either forgotten or not spoken about. I don't know. I don't know Fisher at all, but I'm sure he's doing a good work because these guys are so attentive And incredibly musical, wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful, and very quick, very fast. Jeff and I love, in particular, to kind of nerd out about the instrument that you're playing. Uh, of course, we all know that any string player has an amazing relationship with his or her instrument, and you are no exception. Tell us about this fabulous violin that you play, this Dushkin del Jesu. Mine was made in 41, but he put the label because it's all original labels, which is unusual to get. He usually did it after he closed the violin for the last time. So he knew this was it because he would make it, he would open it up. 
I don't know what he did with it. He probably slept with it, you know, or he slept <laughs> on a tree. I don't know what he, but when he put the final coating, he then closed it. And that's when the original, the number went according to the year. And mine was closed in 42, but you know, it was made in 41, very similar wood. And for some reason, and we don't know why, there was extraordinary wood that came down the River Po. The River Po uh, is the river that divides Cremona, or goes through Cremona, and that's how they got wood for windows, for doors, for all kinds of things. And these violin makers from 16, 15, 60, 1550, uh, Mati to start with, to about 1700, uh, got their wood from the water. Um, and the Guaneri family is fascinating. They had a building, probably three or four flights. And the Jesu, called Joseph, Joseph uh, Guaneri, his father was Phileas. Believe it or not, my viola, which is so lucky, the top is Phileas. The sides in the back is Andrea. Andrea is the Jesu's grandfather. So I have literally 102 years of the same DNA. Can you believe it? Not only that, if you heard the viola, you say, my God, what an instrument. It's really amazing. And it was owned by a lovely lady in London that played in one of the orchestras. She had to let go of the instrument because she didn't have enough money for insurance. Oh, no. And it came to, to Charles Beer, Jane A. Beer, and Charles and I have been friends for many, many years. And uh, long story short, I saw the back only, just a piece of wood. I said, what's that, Gaspar? He said, you're close. He said, but you can't see the front. I said, why? I said, I want to see it. He said, no, I'm not. I can't. Anyway, I snuck up to the shop. I looked at the guy that was make, working on it and it came together, Phileas and an Andrea together. When that thing was closed six months later, I played the first three notes on it. I went, oh my God. <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful sonorities ever of that particular. There are only about really five Andrea Guarneri's. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have, and this violin I have, I met when I was about uh, 15 or so, 16. And she and I have something together that nobody can explain. I can't explain it because I was at Wolitzer's and there were a whole bunch of fiddle players standing around, including Sam. And Sam always had that fiddle in the vault. He just wouldn't touch it. And all of a sudden, I said, come on, Pinky, play something. So I got up and I started playing on it. It's like you turned on the volume. And all these fiddle players says, what did you do? I said, I don't know, but it's a miracle. <laughs> I said, and so I looked at Sam. I said, uh, you know what I'm going to say? He said, yeah, I know, but I'm not ready to sell it. I said, no, 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 not sell it. But if you ever want to let somebody play it, please call me. <laughs> so in 1980, and I'd had a few Guaneris by that time, the Jesus, I bought an auction, I bought here, I bought there. When that came around, Mrs. Mrs. Dushkin was selling it. And uh, a friend of mine in Chicago, philanthropist, amateur fiddle player, Howard is his name, Howard Gottlieb. He called Pinky, he said, I have the Dushkin here and I hear you really love it. I said, you do? He said, look, I can't have every violin in the world. I said, why don't you have Charles come? Anyway, it came to London, same case, same strings, same everything. I picked it up. Within five minutes, the thing was just, it said, nice to see you again. I said, nice to see you again. And I purchased it at that time, uh, which seems like no money at all today for these instruments. And I've been very fortunate. I've been living with her since 1980. And boy, she's been a wonderful friend, let me tell you. 
She has saved my life so many times. Oh, my God. It's an amazing, amazing Especially when it's a dry concert hall, when it's acoustically dry, this thing just rings like a son of a bitch. It's amazing. <laughs> it's fantastic to hear this 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 background. Um, training young musicians, we know, has always been a big part of your professional profile, both in Canada at National Arts Center and also in the States. Could you talk to us a little bit about the Zuckerman Performance Program at the Manhattan School of Music? I know it's a very select group of people that get into that. Tell us a little bit about that and why you're so proud of it. Well, it's, uh, nobody's really asked me that that way, but I, I started teaching just to go back in, in 19 when I was 24. Um, and it's because my dad had a stroke. He played the violin. The right side was, you know, kaput. And uh, one day I was at home in Tel Aviv. He spoke very little, but Yiddish. But I, we could understand my mom and I could understand his motions and so on. So I said, do you want to play in Yiddish? I said, do you want to play? He said, nah. I said, no, 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 I'll go behind you. Ah, okay. And the Mendelssohn violin concerto was probably the thing that saved him in Auschwitz. Uh, so I looked at him and I said, in Yiddish, the Wils Mendelssohn spielen. Oh, his face lit up. Now, the, to start that stupid concerto, it's on a B natural on the E string, and it's no man's land. It's literally like a DMZ. I mean, he put that thing right there, and I went behind him and we played the first phrase. And he hadn't played, I mean, since 1969 or 68. But I mean, he was paralyzed, you know. Um, and it was amazing. I, I looked at him, I said, hmm. <laughs> and I started talking to every neurologist I could possibly pick up in the street, literally. I said, tell me about the brain. And they said, what do you want to know? I said, well, my dad uh -huh. said, well, we have basically two sides, but they really work together. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I looked into this. And that's when I started working with some people, not teaching so much, but just being part of their for three or four days in the festival. And one of my first students, so-called, in the festival was Peter Ungen in London, in Brighton. And uh, the rest is history. So I really got fascinated by how this thing works. And believe it or not, I still don't know. And any, any neurologist to tell you that he knows, go to the next doctor. Because <laughs> <laughs> they have no idea. But they're fascinated by it. Because we do have two sides. They say it works together. I don't... I don't teach like that. We teach the right side first because that's the sound, that's the bow. As I kept, about 30 years ago, I, was, I couldn't get through to one of the students. I said, listen to me, would you please? I said, this is your bank account. Whoa, lights went on. I said, bank account? I said, yeah, you play better with this hand, you make more money. Bingo, it's amazing. And I've been using it ever since. So when my, Marta Stoman Casals, was the president of Manhattan. And my very close friend, and has been for over 35 years, Patinka Kopek, the two ladies somehow talked and Marta phoned me because I met her, I was 11, when Kazaz was then married to her, or she was married to him. She was 25, I think, he was 180, I don't remember. And he came <laughs> to Israel, and I played for him, of course. And, and so she, she called me and she said, Pinky, I want you to come and teach at the school. I said, what? 
She said, I don't have a, I, I don't even have a, anything. I, I'm supposed to have a diploma, but you know me, I was off. She says, I don't care. My dear old husband, first one, also didn't have a diploma, but he had the most beautiful bore and I want you to teach because you have the most beautiful bore I said, whoa, I got to think about this. Who put you onto this? He says, my own brain. I said, wait a minute. Yeah, but there's a woman here called Patty Kopek. I said, oh, of course. Anyway, Patty and I started teaching. It's been a long, long journey, and it's been wonderful. And so I started, I asked for many things at the school. One of them was to have Patty as my associate uh, because she really works with them because I had to travel, you know. Um, how am I going to teach them all? If So she was, she and I have been doing this for so long. Now, of course, we have long distance, right? We have all this Zoom schmoom and we have iPhone and now we're getting, Mr. Musk is giving us something extraordinary. It's called low latency, which will change everything. Again, not only COVID, but this will change even more so. Anyhow, and take a look at this. SpaceX is really one of them. So they're putting up the satellites up there. It's going to be amazing. I've already played... It's sensational. I was really 94. I was the first one to discover this thing. So another long story, but nevertheless, I started to teach and I said to Marta, let's do two to four years, a program. She said, what kind of a program? I said, two to four years. I don't know because I don't know anything about the school, but you guys got to figure it out. You know, master programs, a doctor's program with this or that and the other, but it'll take about two to four years for the brain to work because this is the slowest computer. And sure enough, and look, we have phenomenal results. Phenomenal. Um, with hundreds of people all over in everything, in quartets and chamber music and solo. Uh, we've developed a fantastic relationship with the younger generation and I love them. And you know why I love them? Because when you see talent, it overwhelms me still today. When I hear someone play 14, 15, 12, 16, 18, and they have that talent, <gasps> I get goose pimples. I'm telling you, I get goose pimples. I love it. I just love it. And I said, come over here. When they play 10 minutes, I said, that's wonderful. I said, I want to hug. You know, now you're not supposed to hug a female, but you know what? They go to hell with you. And the little, oh, can I please hug you? They come and say, of course, come here. And they do it, they hug you. You know they're talented. <laughs> they're so amazing. So that's it. That's why I teach. I teach because I think they deserve the knowledge that I got from my mentors. And let me tell you, it's hard work. Oh, my God. And the best thing that I learned from most of them is imitation. Imitation. There's nothing wrong with imitating someone. You know why? Why we, we can imitate? Because we get information. Isaac Stern used to me, he said, Picky, be a sponge. I said, what? Be a sponge. I said, okay, okay. Now I know what he meant, you know? So I heard this one, I heard that one, I heard singers, I heard pianists, conductors, all kinds of things. I mean, and you remember it. Somehow that brain is unbelievable. It keeps information and it spews it out. Everyone's, I heard Fischer Diskau once the winterizer, I was knocked out. I mean, knocked out. It was in London at the Elizabeth Hall with Daniel playing. And you know what he did? He smoked until he put the cigarette out and then went and sang for an hour and 50 <laughs> <laughs> you 
And it was phenomenal. We played with him the Beethoven songs, and he was then almost married to the woman that he met in Carnegie Hall. And there was a song about Halloween, and he kept saying Halloween, Halloween. <laughs> I didn't want to say, Dieter, I'm sorry, you know, it's Halloween. He didn't know what that was. So Christina came up to him and said, Dieter, it's a stupid holiday in America called Halloween. Now, he says, but it's a W. He said, yeah, but it's Halloween. It's not Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> That's a... It was so oh. sweet, you know. Anyway, I got so incredibly enamored by his standing on his toes when he sang pianissimos. I said, why do you do that? He said, because I'm singing to the exit sign. Oh, my God. I said, play to the exit sign. Get on your toes. Play to the exit sign, you know? So it's information. You never forget these things. Mind you, the foundation I got was from my teacher in Israel. She was from the Ubay School in Budapest. I'm amazing. You know, a wonderful violinist. We played German music since I was nine years old, twice a week. And then, of course, Lamian. Galamid was unbelievable. Unbelievable. So that's it. The rest is uh, just accumulating information. I still do. I still do. And I love it. I, I adore making music more than ever. Um, because when it, as Galamin used to say, if it sounds good, you feel good. Oh, yeah. That's actually perfect, Maestro. And I, 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 we can speak, we can testify to the success of your students. I know that they're all over, but one of Utah's symphony audience favorites is Vivian Hogner. She comes here quite a bit. And, you first viola is here. And we've got one of your students, Brant Bayless, in our... I hope he comes tomorrow well. to talk to me because apparently he's got some problems. But anyway, yeah. you will see him. He's such a sweetheart. Oh, yeah. he's wonderful. wonderful. I, I feel, Maestro, that we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and <laughs> you would never get tired. It's amazing to hear you talk about your life and your history and your philosophy and... I think for everyone at the Utah Symphony, thank you so much for coming out to conduct concerts. I just want to say, just if you don't forgive me for a minute. Please. Um, I know we are all in, in an incredible moment. Um, let's say change, but it's more than change. It's a new value system. Some people are suffering terribly, terribly. I'm not talking about this hemisphere. Um, they're seeing loved ones die. They see their children die. They see their parents and grandparents. It's horrible. It's just horrible. Um, I don't have the knowledge, medical knowledge, of how to cure someone or to give them, but I can play for them. Because I know that music, the music that we play, is feeds a part of what we have up here called the brain to make you better. There's no question about it. I've done it many years in wartime to hospitals. We've seen actually people that have, they can't walk, they have paralysis as they get older. You play the right tune for them and they're running. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what it does yet, but it's coming. So I just want to say that if you feel bad, if one feels bad at the end of a day or the beginning of a day, oh my God, you know, and you can go beyond that, but start with that. And it's not bad, you know? 
I could just listen to these stories all day. <laughs> I want you to know both my daughters are singers. One is a pop, she writes fantastic poetry. She's a fantastic illustrative artist and she plays the guitar. It's beautiful. The other one is a soprano. Don't right. hold against her. <laughs> and, and Ariana, she's wonderful. And she's become a wonderful, wonderful teacher also. I guess it's DNA, but Ariana is really super. And they both are great, great. And sometimes they will, we used to more so before they got, you know, older <laughs> that called me and say, Ariana, especially dad, how in the hell do you do that phrase? I said, I don't know. So play it. So I played for her. Now, we did um, Magic Flute in Ottawa. She was the second lady. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reason she was the second lady is because I had to have a Canadian to be first lady. Mm -hmm. okay. Doesn't matter. I said, I love that role. It's beautiful. And the third lady was French Canadian, which was a disaster. <laughs> but Ariana really worked with her. I rehearsed so much with the repertoire. And once we got into this setting of where they go, Ariana, my daughter, she came to me and said, Dad, you for 10 days now, you've been crutching at us about how to do this and how to do that. And I said, yeah. She said, you know what? I know what you're talking about, but I don't think Don is another, maybe one other person here that knows what it's about. I said, will you bring your fiddle tomorrow to rehearsal? I said, wow, <laughs> sensational. So I brought my fiddle and I sat there and I started to play the second violin part. I had the piano still playing. I started playing the other voice when he wasn't singing, whatever. You know, the whole thing changed in 20 minutes, less than 20 minutes, everything changed. Yeah. I said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to know it's her fault. <laughs> you can blame Ariana for that. And they all said, Ariana, thank you. Because there's no, there's no substitute for the sound penetrating. Right. There's, there's no substitute for that. Yeah. You can talk about it until the cows come home. But what Ariana said, see, I know what you want because I've heard you play all my life. So that's, that's what I call by imitation. Yeah. People and very good ones will say, don't imitate. Uh, you know what? I would love to play like Heifetz just for 10 minutes once. And I think I've done it many times, but it didn't sound anything like him. <laughs> Playing like Zuckerman's pretty great too, though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you know, well, because we get together with fiddle players, you know, like Perlman and I were touring together and all. Sure. He said, Play a little bit like Heifetz here. He said, what? I said, play like Heifetz here. He said, why? I said, because I want to hear it. They play like Heifetz. He said, ah, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh like my goodness. Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's that's information. Um, I think I took from everybody, from everybody, including Grappelli and the Gypsies in Budapest. Oh my God! Mm. I went. I went running. I still do to a place. The name was Corley. He he played. Oh my God! He cried in that fiddle, in the middle of a restaurant. And he come over to me, and I I would hold his hand while he was playing. It was so beautiful. You know, Gypsy never learned how to play, but my God, he played everything. Maestro, it seems that there is no limit to the stories you have, and Carol and I could listen all day long. Maybe we will after we sign off, but I actually have a Perlman story for you, and it's a funny one. He was in Baltimore Symphony when I worked there back in 2009, 
And he needed to go, he had a day between rehearsals and the concert, so he needed to go back to New York. So he was taking the train. So I drove him to the train station as part of my job. And he said to me, you carry the fiddle, take it on the train, make sure it gets in the overhead. Of course, of course, Maestro, of course. So we get to the fiddle, I mean, sorry, to the train. He gets a seat. I get on the train. I tell the man, I'm not going. Just, I'm just putting this here. The guy <laughs> says, of course, no problem. I turn around and I put it in and I feel the train. Oh, no. <laughs> I turn around, different guy, asks me for my ticket. He's very angry. I had to ride all the way to Delaware. <laughs> Get off the train and come back. My car was illegally parked in front of the train station. Wow. Complete disaster. But Perlman was an amazing gentleman. He told me stories the whole way, kept me from freaking out too much. <laughs> Such no, a great we, guy. One of our first initial tours was uh, in Europe in 78, 79 season. And I can tell you that knowing him, of course, since I was about 10, he was 13. He played, we both played for Ed Sullivan, but Ed, Ed took him to play on the show because he looked for unusual things. At any rate, um, that's how long we've known each other. So we went to Europe. Yeah, we did, I don't know, nine concerts in 10 days in all the different places. What I learned from that guy, oh my God, it was amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. I was in stitches. Literally, in, I'll tell you one anecdote. It's really hysterical. We played somewhere the night before we arrived in Dusseldorf. And we were playing the Schumann Saal, which is very nice. About I think it's about 1,100 seats, rectangular, beautiful acoustics. Um, and he would be telling me about steps here and steps there and how he has to enter this side and that side. He remembers everything. I mean, every single thing. So the Itzik, I said, uh, you know the Schumann's? I said, I haven't been here in a while. He said, is that by the river? I said, no, 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 that's the tone holler. He said, oh, shoot. He said, I, I don't remember this one. So I started describing it. And he says, oh, my God. He says, there are 10 steps to get up to where the door is. There's a little area, maybe three by three or four by four. He says, I'll have to get up there, have a chair, and then I can get in. I said, okay. So I, of course, the presenter was with us and we said, that's what he needs. He needs to do that. And then the presenter always says, what time would you like to come to the hall? I said, it's like, do you remember the hall? Are you sure you remember the hall? He said, yeah, yeah. In the beginning, it's coming back. As we arrived at the hall, at the, at the Breitenbacher Hof, which was the hotel then, he said to me in Hebrew, he said, there's no bathroom. I said, what do you mean there's no bathroom? He said, Germans don't have a bathroom? Are you kidding? He said, there's no bathroom. I said, where is it? He said, it's two floors down. I said, holy shit. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's no elevator. <laughs> so I went out to the presenter. I said, uh, what time is the concert? He said, eight o'clock. I said, okay, you come here 10, 10 to eight. He said, it's a little late. I said, you don't have a bathroom, bathroom a toilet. He said, yeah, yeah, gib schon, gib schon an Toilette. I said, no, no, no. Zwei Stocke runter und kein Lift. Was? <laughs> That's Zach Perlman. He went and checked it. He called us. He said, okay, you know. So he, we went as late as possible to the, to the concert hall. And then we finished usually by 10.30 with encores. And six says, let's go. Because I got yeah. up into the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Oh, my gosh. It, but what a wonderful sense of humor. And oh, in yeah. The, in oh, the yeah. hotel, they were giving him the best room, right? Which is a thousand miles away from the elevator. And he kept saying to him, just give me a room by the lift. He said, no, no, but Mr. Perlman, we have a park view for you, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he just wanted the lift. 
Yes, you know, so he doesn't have to go schlepping down, you know, a mile away. I mean, people just have no idea, right? Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, and Heathrow, where we had to go with a wheelchair, they're all locked up, and oh my God, amazing, amazing. Yeah. But he's an incredible soul, you know? He is. And he is. what he has done for all the handicaps oh, is extraordinary. Huge. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Now, of course, you don't have to schlep his fiddle anymore because he's always on the chair, you know? Uh-huh. So he used to give me the fiddle. He says, well, get out of here, he says. You don't need to take my fiddle. I have my my chair. So he goes on the chair now all the time. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Except with Zubin. Zubin says, it's like, I want the violin. <laughs> he, said, I can. he said, no, I want it. So he gives him the violin, you know? Well, that chair would have saved me a trip to Delaware, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's just because oh, my he gosh. It's amazing. You know, yeah. he once we played... In 72, we played in Israel, and there's an elevator that takes down the, the piano, etc. And for some reason, it, it didn't line up. You know, he, he not that he's careless, but he fell flat on his ass. Huh. Uh, we, of course, had his violin. It was with Piedigorsky playing. I was playing viola of Daniel because Jackie couldn't play anymore at that mm-hmm. point. And he was on the floor. Uh, and he... You know, Pierre of course, immediately, you know, you know, I come and help. So don't touch me. And he somehow, he got himself back up again. And I'm thinking, do you want to clean your hands? He said, no, they're clean. <laughs> that was pre-COVID. <laughs> now we'd all clean our hands. <laughs> Falling down like that. Yeah, yeah that's a lot for him. Sitting yeah. down and trying yeah. to play. I mean, it was like nothing happened. I mean, stuff like that. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable what an amazing spirit <laughs> i never never ever thought being the child of a new country in 1948 called israel that i would see and be able to be comfortable and sitting and talking and teaching with arab kids arab people around the world not only do we have peace with two countries already for a long time and i happen to be privileged enough and lucky to be able to play in that night when we signed the first i was 31 signed that first peace treaty and with sadat and begin and so on and carter since then it's been amazing and now we have arab emirates we have emirates we have the uae we have saudi arabia it looks like it's going to work that's unbelievable that means that something does work eventually we need to start slowly getting to a place where we can talk to the other side uh, of the world and say, people say to me, you go to Russia? I said, of course. I said, how come? I said, because Tchaikovsky opened Carnegie Hall. They go, what? I said, Tchaikovsky opened Carnegie Hall. They said, oh, do you see Putin? I said, if I want to, I will. I see Gergiev, that's good enough for me. <laughs> you know? So, no, I'm serious. We have to keep an open mind. I work with the kids on this stuff, you know? I tell them all that stuff. Because who else is going to tell them this? I was told that by some incredible mentors, you know. Um, and that's it. You just go to the next generation. And I'm lucky enough that I can still play okay. I practice like hell every day. I got a mm-hmm. routine you wouldn't believe. And it's been 55 years now I've been doing this. So I think I'll be part of the new staple or whatever it is that's going to come in. I don't know if we'll be, go, be going to all the places we went so far, but we will, we will. I know I can go to Abu Dhabi now. Oh my mm. God, I can't wait. I can't wait. So there you go. I climbed up the pyramids. Imagine, Israel 
Hey boy, pyramids. Oh my God. You know, that's almost better than going pa 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 pa. Quite, not quite, but almost. <laughs> you know, I found a quote as you were talking because I was thinking about what you were saying about music uniting people. And I found a quote from an author, Sarah Dessen, and she says, it's uh, music is the great uniter, an incredible force, something that people who differ on everything and anything else can have in common. And I think that's just what we need to remember in this, in this time of such strife and change that we can still be united through this. You know, it's very easy to say, I hate something. But boy, to say, I love something. For some reason, we don't, I do. I said, I love that. <laughs> and they said, really? I said, yeah, I really, I love Pesto. I love Michelangelo. I, I love Bach. I love all those people. You know, how can you not love all these things? And so I love the sunset and the sun up. And I remember living out in Montauk, New York. And in the summertime, they would turn one of the old houses, 1600, into a kind of little place where people came at six o'clock to watch the sunset. And when the sunset came, when the sunset, when the sun disappeared, and I went, the hell are they doing? <laughs> no questions, you clap, how miracle that is. Okay, so the one thing that I know they're never gonna change is the sun comes up in the east and sets in the west, and that's it. The rest is hullabaloo. And we're having the biggest hullabaloo in a hundred years now. But we'll get over that. We'll get over this. You know, the human spirit is so powerful. If we allow it to just be common sense, you know, common sense. And dogs will tell you, you have a cat, you know that. She'll tell you what she wants or he tell you what he wants without saying anything. Isn't that amazing? So to me, that's fascinating. I have a new dog we're breeding now. It's amazing what that dog does. So, you know, anyhow, I'll stop now. Well, Maestro, this has been amazing conversation. Maybe, and maybe, maybe this will stop me. <laughs> <laughs> He's putting on his mask. And I think that's the sign that it's that's Amazon. Amazon. Yes. 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 She said, you get an you're putting that on. I said, I did. Not only that. <laughs> I said, you see, sweetheart? I am. She said, oh, you look good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pika Zuckerman, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Ghost Light Podcast. It's been truly an honor to talk with you. A pleasure to see you guys. Keep thank safe. You. Keep yes, safe. Thank you so much. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation. <laughs> <laughs>